15. Respect all, fear none. Into the upper deck. Intensity is not a perfume. Oh my goodness. Five, four, three, two, one. From inside the warehouse at Oriole Park at Camden Yards, it is the Masson All Access Podcast. Paul Mancano and Brendan Mortensen back here with you. Feels like forever since we've been on a podcast together, but we are here talking about the Baltimore Orioles. An exciting times yet again for those Baltimore Orioles. After some trials and tribulations during your Seattle trip, they seem to have uh, figured some stuff out. They win the series finale uh, in Minnesota. And then they win on the 4th of July yesterday in exciting fashion. Yeah, there were trials. There were additional tribulations. But you got an awesome game in the series opener. Yeah. In Seattle. I did. What was that, last Friday? It feels like forever ago Last Monday. I don't even know. Yeah, yeah, last Last Monday. Monday. Yeah, a week ago. In Seattle. Mm -hmm. We will not talk about my road trip record. No. At this point. But that series opener, what, five home runs? Five home runs. They had back-to-back home runs in back-to-back innings. Yes, yeah. It was the homecoming for Adley Rutschman, yes. who hits a home run in front of his grandfather. All around a really cool game in game one of that series, and then games two and three, not so much. There were no shortage of storylines in that game. No. I mean, wasn't that also Tyler Wells was pitching? Tyler Wells had a perfect game through four and two-thirds. Yeah. And then gives up a solo home run, and that game was interesting because Brandon Hyde was trying to limit Tyler Wells at that point, trying to hold him somewhere in the 65 pitch range, and probably was pretty happy that he gave up a solo home run because he didn't have to decide whether or not to take him out in the middle of a perfect game. Yeah, I think he would probably rather take the perfect game, but in the moment, I think you're probably at least not sweating as much through those middle innings right. to make sure that his pitch count is down. But that was forever ago. It Since was. that time, the Orioles went out to Minnesota. As mentioned, they struggled a little bit, uh, and then they win the series finale, and then they win yesterday. And today we're going to talk about their formula of winning defense and how they have constructed this defense that could potentially go from one of the worst in baseball to one of the best in baseball by season's end. But first, Brendan, topic that has been on a lot of uh, Orioles... Twitter, as of late, and that is Jorge Lopez. A couple weeks ago on this podcast, we were talking about who the Orioles' representative, in parentheses S, if there could be multiple representatives, for the All-Star game could be, and you said Jorge Lopez would have to give up multiple runs over multiple appearances. And why did I say that? (laughs) Why did I do it? When you said it, I almost felt like saying, well, that's a jinx. Uh, It was. he really said, well, maybe I will. And uh, he has done that. <laughs> I don't know if he said that specifically. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if he listened to the podcast and said, now that's a good idea. Jorge Lopez, loyal listener. Um, in which case, you planted that seed. And, and I'm was, so sorry. It was a terrible idea. Yeah. Um, he only has, after everything, and we'll get into all of his struggles, after all is said and done, we're sitting here on Tuesday, July 5th. All-Star game is a couple weeks away, less than two weeks away. And he still has a 188 ERA terrible he still has a whip around one less than one less than one he still is one of the better relievers in all of baseball however you can't deny what you've seen from him lately which is a couple blown saves over the weekend 
And yesterday, getting the ball in a tie game, in a 5-5 game in the ninth inning, and allowing a solo homer and more on-base traffic, and ultimately looks all fine because it's not a blown save. It wasn't a safe situation. And the Orioles come out of that game with a win, thanks to the heroics of Adley Rutschman and others. However, it is a very undeniably bad stretch right now for Jorge Lopez. It is, but it's it's a bad stretch, and it's something that happens for relievers on occasion. It happens to some of the best relievers in all of baseball. You can look at Devin Williams, who is renowned as one of the best relievers in all of baseball, is going to be an all-star this year. Early on in the season, he had a stretch of two games, one of which was against the Orioles, in which he gave up four earned runs over those two games. Jorge Lopez has given up five earned runs over his last three. You mentioned the two blown saves against the Twins and then the run yesterday. It's a bad stretch. Bad stretches happen. Look at Aroldis Chapman, the Yankees' closer. He has allowed eight runs over his last six appearances. It happens to some of the best closers in the game. It's just one of those things. It is one of the hardest things in baseball to accomplish, and that is saving a game. And to do it repeatedly takes not just a certain kind of pitcher in terms of your arsenal, but it also takes a certain kind of mental makeup. And for the first couple months of the season, Jorge Lopez was about as locked in as you could possibly be. A full-time reliever for the first time in his career after being mostly a failed starter in Kansas City and Baltimore. And it looked like he had the stuff to be a closer. But like you said, Brendan, it just seems like there, the position of closer is one that runs very hot and cold. It is one where it snowballs quickly if you have one bad outing. And whether that's a mental thing where y- you have to be able to shake off a bad outing like a football cornerback or you know be, be have a short memory, they say, like memory of a goldfish, as Ted Lasso would say, and be able to shake off your failures. Or whether it's a physical thing where he was tired after pitching two days in a row and then maybe gets the ball in a non-save situation, and, and that was could have been a mental thing as well because he wasn't protecting a lead anymore. We don't quite know, and that's why it is one of the hardest spots on the baseball diamond to find a player who can fill that role consistently year in and year out. And for right now, we're still finding out. The, the book is not written yet about Jorge Lopez as a closer. And for the first couple months, the first several chapters looked excellent, but the last couple show signs of cracks. And the question is, is he going to let the dam burst and ultimately lose his job in the closer role? Or is he going to repair them and be able to keep his job going forward? Well, look, it started with that first blown save against the Twins, where he gave up the home run to Byron Buxton. He gave up a home run to one of the best power hitters in all of baseball on a low and away slider that Byron Buxton was just strong enough to put, put out of the ballpark. So... That is kind of what got the ball rolling for this Jorge Lopez recent stretch of struggles here. And like you said, Paul, being a closer is such a mental game. There is a reason that there are relievers throughout baseball who have really good stuff, yeah. but aren't able to be closers. And and It's just ex- a different animal. And are excellent in the eighth and seventh innings. Right. And just can't do the ninth. There are reasons that there are relievers who just aren't built for yeah. it. And so far, we have seen that Jorge Lopez looks to be built for it, but this is kind of the first adversity that we've really seen him face. And so I think it's going to be an important stretch here to see how he responds to this. 
And for those saying that you just don't pitch him in those high leverage situations anymore, that's not the answer. Yeah. He's got to pitch out of this. The leash can't be that short. No. I mean, he give, he blows the save. He's still the best reliever on the team. Yes. And was an excellent closer. He's, what, 13 for 17 now in save opportunities. He blows the first save against Minnesota. And by the time he blows that second save, Orioles fans were saying he just can't pitch in the ninth inning. You can't give him a, one or two or three blown saves and say, that's it, and yank him from that position because it's, like we said, because it's so hard to find somebody who's consistently good, and he appeared to be consistently good. And it, not just consistently good, he was consistently excellent. Yeah. And I mean, we can't talk about this stretch unless we talk about the 29 games before this stretch. Right. From April 15th to June 29th, Jorge Lopez pitched 34 and two-thirds innings, allowed a singular earned run, a singular extra base hit. He allowed one triple over that stretch. His ERA was 0.29. Opponents hit 103 with a 307 OPS, and he allowed just 12 hits total while striking out a lot of guys. He's phenomenal. So we can't talk about this three-game stretch and just completely ignore the 30 or so games where he was the best reliever in all of baseball. And the Orioles haven't utilized him like other closers around baseball have been utilized. We talked about it a couple weeks ago how Josh Hader is strictly a ninth inning guy. I mean, he's either getting three outs or he's blowing the save. He's not being called upon in the eighth inning. Same with Kenley Jansen out in LA or out in Atlanta now. I'm so used to him being a Dodger. Same with some of the best closers in baseball. They are reserved for the ninth inning, but Jorge Lopez has been called upon so many times this year to get five or four out saves. And he's been phenomenal. And at times that that leads to his save numbers not being ridiculously high. He has 17 opportunities and 13 saves. So you look at closers around baseball, there are 15 closers with at least 15 saves and a better save percentage. So the save percentage is not great right now for Jorge Lopez. But of that group, of those 15, only three have lower ERAs than Jorge Lopez. So he's getting outs in the eighth inning that, frankly, other closers aren't being asked to do. And that's something that Brandon Hyde has been comfortable using him in that kind of role. So you can't just look at 13 for 17 in save opportunities. He's not a closer. You also have to say, hey, he's being asked to throw four or five out saves, and he's getting out of critical situations when CNL Perez or Felix Bautista or Joey Crable gets in a tough spot in the eighth inning, and they call on Jorge Lopez to clean up the mess, and he does it. So it's not just about saves and save opportunities for Jorge Lopez. It's the other value that he brings you. And it's it feels like a very weird and kind of strange microscope that Orioles fans seem to only be putting on Jorge Lopez and not guys like CNL Perez or Felix Bautista. Because if you wanted to run with this hypothetical and say, okay, you know what? I'm sick of Jorge Lopez. He's blown three games so far, and I don't want to see him in the ninth inning anymore. Your solutions then would probably either be CNL Perez or Felix Bautista. They have been great and don't want to take anything away from them. But their resumes this season have not been squeaky clean. No. I mean, you can even go back to the Seattle series where Felix Bautista struggles in that game, gives up a run. CNL Perez was not excellent in that game either. There are plenty of games that you can point to for those two pitchers in particular and say, you know what? They weren't fantastic in those outings. So if your solution is to just not pitch Jorge Lopez in the ninth anymore, 
you don't have a better answer. Yeah. And also, what would you like Brandon Hyde to do? Not turn to the reliever who has been excellent for 95% of the season? He's going to keep pitching Jorge Lopez because Lopez has proven this year that he is the most reliable reliever on this team in big-time situations. I think it's especially difficult, not just because of the pressure, but you're the last guy standing, and especially for Jorge Lopez after those two games in Minnesota. Not just did he blow the lead and allow the game to be tied and then get out of the ninth inning and they go to extras. He blew the lead, game was tied, and then he gave up the game-winning run. So that makes it even more frustrating because you're not just going from a a win to a tie and extra innings. You're going from a win to a loss, which is especially crumbling and frustrating, snatching defeat from the jaws of victory, as you would say. But I I look around, you talk about the Orioles fan base and you know their kind of reaction to Jorge Lopez. I'd venture to say that there are probably 25 fan bases in Major League Baseball right now that are unhappy with their closer. At least. Because it is a position that draws more ire than almost any other position in baseball, maybe more than any other position. And for whatever reason, because it's so high leverage, because it's so difficult, because the difference between a win and a loss is just a few batters here and there, it leads to a lot of fan bases having very, very short expectations or very short tempers with their pitchers, right? Uh, with their closers. And I, I look at some of the better closers in all of baseball. Ask New York Yankees fans how they feel about Araldus Chapman, like you just said, Brendan, who has been one of the best closers this side of 2000 in the 21st century. But ask the fans what they think about him, and they'll probably roll their eyes. And every time he comes into the game, I'll, not every one of them, but I'm sure a lot of them, probably start sweating and say, here we go. Right. Ask, maybe, you know, Josh Hader has a ton of fans in Milwaukee. He's probably one of the few five closers in baseball who has, right now, the entire fan base behind him. But again, even Devin Williams in Milwaukee yeah. earlier on in the year when he had that rough stretch to start the year. Brewers fans were probably frustrated with him. Yeah. He has two of the best pitches in baseball. Look at Edwin Diaz, another New York guy with the Mets. A couple years ago, he had a 5-5-9 ERA. People wanted to run him out of New York. And that was the team that they had Robinson Cano, and they were just a disappointment, and he just looked like a lost pitcher. Now he's beloved. So it can change just like that. But it is another position that is sort of like a goalie in hockey, and I'm not the biggest hockey fan in the world, but I know that during the course of a hockey game, you could have a superstar goalie. And if he's given up four goals by the midway point in the second period, you might have to pull that guy. And it doesn't matter how good his pedigree is, how good his resume is. If it gives you a better opportunity to win a game, you have to pull him. So, yes, Jorge Lopez has been absolutely incredible through the first couple months. and he's But that, that rough stretch, you don't want to extend that. So, you don't want to give him a too short of a leash and say he's given up runs in his last three appearances. We got to make a change at closer. But at the same time, you do have to monitor it. And you have to be careful because you don't want something to snowball and then it be, definitely becomes a mental thing. And then he's blowing leads all over the place because it can be one of those positions where guy can be on an incredible hot streak and it just takes a few games here and there and suddenly things have snowballed and he's no longer fit to be a closer. Well, look, I understand that this is the closer gig. You have the weight of losing the game if you blow a save in the ninth. The Orioles have not had big leads yeah. over the last few games. That is why we are seeing 
Jorge Lopez in these situations because they're close games. And then Jorge Lopez gives up a run or two. And all of a sudden, the Orioles lose that game. I would like to see the Orioles maybe get a four-run lead in the ninth. That's a scenario where you could pitch Jorge Lopez with a four-run lead, even if he gives up a run. He doesn't have the weight of losing the baseball game yeah. on his shoulders as he almost did yesterday. So give give Jorge Lopez a little bit more run support in the ninth. Maybe throw him into him into a situation that's a little bit less high leverage. See what he can do with a bigger lead. Hopefully that starts to build a little bit more confidence that he can pitch with a four-run lead in the ninth or he can pitch with a one-run lead. It's difficult because you can't map it out like that, unfortunately. Right. Brandon Hyde would love to have a 10-5 lead. Well, right, but these are the situations that he's gotten thrown into. Yes. You can't wait around for a game with a four-run lead in the ninth. Right. If the game is tied or the Orioles are up one, you're turning to Jorge Lopez, yeah. whether this rough patch has ended or not. He's the guy. Yeah, it was a 5-5 game yesterday, and there was a potential that the Orioles could have taken the lead in the bottom half of the eighth, in which case you definitely want your closer out there for the ninth. So he had to throw him out there in that situation, and right now it's just not working for him. So something to monitor, but again, not overly concerned, but something to keep your eye on as we go forward. All right, Brendan, should we talk about uh, Orioles defense? We should. The Orioles right now have put together a phenomenal defensive season. The first half of the season, we have officially completed the first 81 games of this season so far. And they are currently in the top five, according to Fangraphs, in several defensive metrics. And you look at where they were last year. They were unequivocally one of the worst defensive teams in all of baseball. According to Fangraphs in 2021, they were 24th in defensive run saved with negative 30. And how have they turned this around? It's a combination of new players, of influx of talent, and also the players on the diamond that they have had in 2021 and 2020 and going back to 2019 even for some of them, consistently getting better defensively. And it is a credit not just to the new guys who have come up and stepped up and been phenomenal, but the guys in-house who have consistently improved their fielding. Yeah, it's a combination of new talent and maybe health as well because True. Austin Hayes has been one of the best defensive players for the Orioles this year. He's just staying healthy, and that's been a massive benefit to this defense. One of the guys that is considered the new talent is Jorge Mateo, and he is one of, if not the best defensive shortstop in baseball right now. He is first in all of baseball in defensive runs saved, according to Fangraphs. Brandon Hyde has talked about his defense a lot because it has been an astronomical jump from last year. Mateo goes from kind of bouncing around in San Diego, playing all sorts of different positions, played the outfield a little bit as well. He even played the outfield a little bit for the Orioles last season, played some shortstop, played second base, was all over the place. This year, he's finally given the chance to be an everyday shortstop, and we are seeing the speed really pay off because his range is unbelievable. And now that he is getting these everyday reps, he's able to make the routine plays as well, not just the spectacular ones. And that's phenomenal because he is making spectacular plays on a regular basis right. as well. He is putting together truly a gold glove caliber season at shortstop. And it, it has been eye-popping plays that are showing up on SportsCenter in addition to the routine plays that he has been phenomenal at. I mean, his throws, accuracy-wise and strength-wise, from deep holes at shortstop 
have been remarkable. I mean, Manny Machado-esque, yeah. honestly. Back when, of course, Manny played mostly at third for uh, the Orioles back then. But the it's re- reminiscent because of how far that throw is. And with Mateo, his range allows him to go so far over to his right that he can then turn on a dime or even have his momentum falling backwards and still make a strong throw over to first is remarkable. Plus the speed with that range that allows him to catch pop-ups where other guys would not be able to in the outfield. It is a perfect combination. And Mateo is an interesting dichotomy of a defense that is gold glove caliber and an offense right now that is near the bottom of the league. I mean, as good as he started out the season offensively, he has been really, really struggling offensively over the last couple months. And you see flashes of his power, which is nice, but he's not getting on base consistently enough. And the question is, how superior does his defense have to be for him to stay on the diamond as the Orioles get ready for this influx of infield talent with Jordan Westberg, with Gunnar Henderson? I mean, it's probably this. He's the best defensive shortstop in baseball right now. And I think about a guy like Andrelton Simmons over the last few years. I'm not comparing Mateo to Simmons because that's a platinum glove. Mateo is not there yet defensively. Yeah. But Andrelton Simmons was kind of a liability offensively for a pretty long stretch throughout his career, but it didn't really matter. I I don't really think there's any thought, at least until Jordan Westberg or Gunnar Henderson get up to the major league level, I don't think there's really any thought of taking Jorge Mateo out of the lineup because he is so valuable defensively that even if he's a bit of a black hole hitting ninth, I don't think it really matters that much. I will say, I think Andrelton Simmons didn't fully come into his own until he was with LA. I think the first several years with Atlanta, he was a quality player. He was not viewed as a superstar kind of defensive talent at the shortstop position. And I think because those Atlanta teams were looking for more offense and it wasn't until he got to LA and put together some strong offensive seasons, strong by his metrics, you know, 750 OPS around there that he started to turn some heads around the league and say, Oh, this is maybe one of the premier shortstops in all of baseball. So that's the risk that I think Mateo runs is if he is on a team right now, now the Orioles are outperforming expectations, but they're not going to be in the, hunt for a wild card position. If he were on a team like the San Diego Padres last year, that is looking for a spot in a wild card game, he may not be good enough offensively to justify that phenomenal defense. It, you can't have a designated fielder. No, I mean, I, I ideally on a winning team, you're not going to have any spot in the lineup where a guy's just not hitting. However, I will say in Jorge Mateo's defense offensively, he has shown defense offensive. Yeah, I know. Uh, he has shown sparks here and there. He has flashed the power a little bit. He's had some home runs go over the new left field wall at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. So there are some flashes there that tell you, okay, when he makes contact, it's a good bat. Yeah. He's just got to work on the bat to ball skills. And if his offense improves over the next year plus, as much as his defense has, then that's a really special player. The offense has just not caught up yet so far. Maybe as the season goes along, we'll see some improvements offensively from Jorge Mateo. We've kind of seen the opposite so far because he started well offensively and has been struggling as of late. But he's still, 
I think, way too valuable to take out of this lineup at this point, especially without a Jordan Westberg or Gunnar Henderson at the major league level yet. Although they are getting close. They are. And we'll talk in a little bit also about Jordan Westberg, who got named to the top 100 prospect list in all of baseball. So these guys are chomping at the bit. And it is not a problem that the Orioles have to worry about now with Jorge Mateo locking down shortstop. However, it is something to keep on your radar as you go forward because that offense has to be... This swing and miss is just too much. And he just seems to not be able to pick up pitches like some of the other guys in this lineup. Yeah, but at the very least, Mateo right now, I think, fits the description of somebody who is locking down a spot for the time being but won't block that spot from any prospects that are coming up. Yeah, and he's better than some of the options that they've had in recent years. Right. Like a Rio Ruiz, who wasn't, you know, shortstop, but played third. It's better than having a Jonathan VR, who's more of a stopgap. Richie a Martin pure stop has struggled. Richie Martin, of course. So he's better than some of those options. And it again, it is still, to, to be able to get this guy off a waiver claim is still a win for Michael Elias in this front office. It's just determining, okay, what can he be? Right. Is he just going to be a purely defensive guy going forward? In which case, if he's on a winning team, he may just have to be a defensive replacement or a Sunday afternoon guy. You Which know, is still, I mean, that's still a valuable role. It is. I oh. mean, if Jorge Mateo down the line can turn into a super utility man who can play shortstop very well with a second base, maybe a, a corner outfield if you need him to, that's still a valuable piece on a winning team. Look at what the Orioles got for an injured Freddie Galvis at the trade right? deadline. I mean, that that was a guy who was giving you nothing on the current team because he was not only injured, he was on a one-year deal. And his offense was not superb at that point when they made that trade. But the Orioles were able to get something for him because at the trade deadline, teams are always looking for defensive players like that. But the question is, you know, is he going to be somewhere that sticks somewhere as an everyday player for four or five, six years? Well, and I still think of a guy like Billy Hamilton who still makes rosters. He still makes rosters, yeah. Because he's just that dangerous on the base paths and he's... Good defensively, not nearly as good as Jorge Mateo is defensively, but just the speed alone is dangerous. So Jorge Mateo has a place on rosters yeah. for a long time, I think. Michael Bourne, somebody like right? that. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's talk about uh, some of the other guys who have made improvements because, like you said, Austin Hayes, somebody who, for the most part, the, the issue has not been his production. The issue has not been his defensive chops. The issue has been his injuries. And knock on wood, he has been healthy for the vast majority of this season. And now he's putting it all together. Right now, according to uh, StatCast, he's in the 8th percentile in outs above average defensively. What am I missing there? That feels like an incorrect number. And I think part of it could be because of the left field wall, maybe. And that is not being factored in yet. I know his range is not as good as some of the other great left fielders. But his range is still very good. It's still good. And, and, you know, that it's still above average, I would think. And his arm, as we know, is maybe one of the best in all of baseball in the corner outfield. So I don't quite understand that stat because you look at everything that he's done on the field. He has been superb handling that left field wall. He has thrown out a ridiculous number, seven outfield assists right now, which is tied for third in all of baseball. I don't know why people keep testing him. And he's getting to balls that... A lot of other left fielders probably would not. Yeah, according to Fangraphs, he is 10th among left fielders in defensive runs saved, which is in part just because there are a lot of good defensive left fielders in baseball right now. But Fangraphs also has an arm metric in which Austin Hayes ranks third. 
because of how strong the arm is and the outfield assists. And he is a really valuable piece in this outfield as well. Maybe part of the reason, Paul, where he's not as high percentile-wise in outs above average is because he bounces around in the outfield a good amount. Maybe. It's kind of based on park conditions where he plays. Wherever the corner is that is probably harder to play defensively, Brandon Hyde will usually put him in that corner. He and Anthony Santander will swap. So Austin Hayes has played a lot of games at left field. That's where he plays at home. But he's also played a good amount of games in right field when the Orioles believe that right field at that park is the harder one to defend. And he'll play some center field as well when Cedric Mullins needs an off day. Yeah. So maybe he's not entirely a left fielder in a lot of those metrics, which is hurting him a little bit, but he is an incredibly valuable piece defensively because of the versatility, because of the arm strength and the range, like you mentioned is still very good. Yeah. That stat just does not jive with what we've seen. No, he's a center fielder just playing whatever position they need him to. Yeah. He's just, he's passing the eye test. That doesn't make too much sense to me. So he's been phenomenal. And then you put together the kind of year that Cedric Mullins has had. I get it. The arm will always be an issue for Cedric Mullins. He's increased his arm strength. The arms has been better. It's this been year. better. It, it's never going to be above average, but his arm is is way less of a concern than his range is a positive. Right. Because that range is simply elite. He's in the 95th percentile. Here's, here's a stat that makes sense. According to StatCast, an outs above average in center field. And another guy like Jorge Mateo, who not just is making the routine play, but is making the spectacular play, too. Yeah, he's ridiculous. I mean, every single game, we see a potential game-saving catch from Cedric Mullins. Yeah. I think back to that. We keep talking about this game, even though it was a week ago. The first game of the series against the Mariners in Seattle. I mean, that defense was laugh out loud good. It was unbelievable. That was one of the best defensive games the Orioles have put together in years. It's one of the best defensive games from a team I have maybe ever yeah. seen. I mean, Cedric Mullins made two ridiculous diving catches in that game. One of them saved two runs from going on the board. Austin Hayes had a cannon of an outfield assist from right field. Yeah. There was a point where sitting up in the press box, people were literally laughing because the defense was that good. The range for Cedric Mullins, like you said, is ridiculous. The arm doesn't even matter. I mean, it, Okay, matters a little it bit. It matters. <laughs> but the range is so good that he's just making plays on baseballs that he has no business getting to. Yeah, and I know that the left field wall could create some issues. We haven't really seen too much of it yet. That's mostly for the left fielder to figure out. Right. Because you look at center field and you look at right field, and those are still relatively average to short distances in center and in right field. And he's not going to have to make throws from very deep in center and right when he's at home. And when a ball is hit to left and it's in that corner, that's going to be the left fielder's ball nine times out of 10. So we're not seeing his arm have to be tested to a ridiculous amount. Plus his, not just his range, Brendan, but his leap. He is, yeah, gets up incredibly high for a guy who's five foot nine, five foot 10. We've seen him make incredible catches. I look back to the catch he made in Kansas city a few weeks ago leaping over the wall to make that catch. We've seen him make incredible catches at Camden Yards, leaping over the wall. So it's the combination of this incredible jump from a guy who's very short and the speed to be able to get to these balls and the timing. I mean, it's not just getting getting in position, but also being able to make the catch. And the I routes. Mean, yes, yeah. You have to get that kind of stuff perfectly. You can get to the ball, but still miss the catch. He's getting it all done. 
And that is what has been so impressive. And for a guy who, in 2020, his, he put together an all uh, gold glove caliber defensive season. He's getting better defensively every single year. I mean, look, there's a ball hit to deep in the gap on the warning track to either gap. Yeah. And you feel like there's a pretty good chance that Cedric Mullins is going to catch that baseball. Yes. I don't know how many doubles or triples have been taken off the board because somebody drives a ball in pretty much the perfect spot, but it's not the perfect spot anymore because Cedric Mullins is playing center field. So the Orioles defense is tied for second in baseball in defensive runs saved, according to Fangraphs, tied with the Padres and just behind the Astros, who are ridiculous right now. They have 11 more defensive runs saved than any other team. So the Orioles can't touch that right now. However, that th- that group with Anthony Santander, former Gold Glove finalist, uh, putting together a very good defensive outfield. I know Santander is not going to put up incredible numbers out in right field, but as right fielders go... Typically not a great defensive position. He's still solid out right. there. Um, Ryan McKenna as well as a yeah, backup. He exactly. is a very good defensive backup, can play all three outfield positions. He's been very valuable defensively as well. Yeah. Uh, one more guy I do want to talk about, Brendan. Another holdover from 2021-2020, Ryan Mountcastle, who by all metrics, by all counts, plus the eye test, was bad defensively in 2021. They stuck him out in the left field to start the season. He was pretty horrendous there. And then they move him over to first base, and he struggled there too. You put those two together, he had negative 10 defensive runs saved last year. He was negative 6 in left field. He was negative 4 at first base. Right now, he is an above-average defensive first baseman. Give credit to the Orioles for giving up on that left field experiment as early as they did. Pretty much the start of May in 2021, they decided... Forget about it. Let's just move him over to first. But also give credit to Ryan Mountcastle, who, by these metrics, was a bad first baseman in 2021 and now is an above-average first baseman. He's in the 78th percentile in outs above average at first base, according to Sackcast. He's been phenomenal. Yeah, and he's a kind of a sneaky athletic guy. Yeah. And he was drafted as a shortstop. As you mentioned, they thought that he was athletic enough and, and a good enough fielder to play third base early on in his minor league career. And then in the majors, like you said, they tried him out in left field. Wasn't very good there. But now that he is getting the consistent reps at first base, we are seeing that athletic ability come into play. He's made some nice diving plays over at first. We're seeing, I mean, even the speed to, you know, maybe there's a ball deep in first base where he's got to cover quickly, whatever it might be. By all accounts, and especially the eye test this year, he looks like a completely different fielder over at first. And I know that it's not a high leverage defensive position. We're not talking about Jorge Mateo at shortstop or Cedric Mullins in center, but it's still important to have a good fielding first baseman. I mean, look how valuable a guy like Paul Goldschmidt has been over his career, not just offensively, but he's very good defensively at first as well. Yeah, and it's a position that doesn't require a lot of great athletes, like you said, Brendan, but his above-average athleticism does come into play at times. He has made phenomenal picks. His reaction time has gotten so much better. I think back to last year, just based off my own memories, he would miss a lot of balls that two bounces or a short hop, and he would just simply not make the play, and it would skip past him and lead either to somebody just being safe on first or getting to second. That those kind of plays are just not happening with nearly as much frequency. And one of the best compliments you can make for a first baseman is that you don't think about it. Right. It's one of those positions where 
yeah, he may wow you every now and again with a superstar play. However, typically, you just don't want to have to think about it because anywhere that the ball is hit towards him, he has to have a wide radius, and he's just able to scoop it up. And you're not... He doesn't come to mind when you think about defensive plays. And so far, that's been the case for Ryan Mountcastle. Yeah, you don't really notice the defense of a first baseman unless it's an error. Yes. Or unless they don't get to cover first, whatever unless it might you be. Bill Buckner it. Yeah. Right. Like you said, if you're not noticing the defensive play of a first baseman, it's because you haven't had to notice. Yeah. So give credit to Mountcastle for something that he has clearly worked on and clearly improved upon. And it's making a huge difference, I think, for this Orioles defense, infield defense in particular. So you look at the outfield. Those three guys in Mullins, Hayes, and Santander, you have now Mountcastle is a plus defender. Mateo has been a plus defender at shortstop. You now have Adley Rutschman behind the plate, who is going to be always pretty much for the next five, ten years, an above average defensive catcher. And it is leaps and bounds ahead of where they were last year or in 2020 or in 2019. And it is something that has gone under the radar, I think, because you look at how bad the pitching was the last few years, and boy, was the pitching a weak spot for them really throughout the entire rebuild, and especially in 2021, and that's partly what led to them having the worst record in baseball. But the fielding has gone under the radar because of their other weaknesses. Right now, the pitching has been so much better, and the fielding might be under the radar as one of the reasons that this Orioles team is outperforming expectations. Well, I think it's part of the reason that the pitching has been so good. There you go. I it mean, goes hand in hand. Right. I mean, you can look at a lot of the starting pitchers in this Orioles rotation right now. If you look at their fielder independent pitching, it's not as good. Yeah. Because the fielding has been so excellent behind them that it is kind of hiding mistakes. Yes. I mean, how many, again, I keep bringing up Cedric Mullins here. But how many balls have been driven into the gap that would have been extra base hits, would have put a runner in scoring position, maybe would have driven in runs, and Cedric Mullins just makes the play. Yeah, or Hayes. I mean, Hayes right? has been almost as good. And I, I look back to even that game, to again, to throw it back to, I, I believe it was the Seattle series, the great defensive game. And unfortunately and ironically, that game kind of unwound because of two bad defensive plays. Not bad. In the third game of that series. negative yeah. defensive plays in the third game of that series. Well, in the, in the second game of that series as well, the night game, where it was a low-scoring game, and Austin Hayes is going for a ball at the wall, and he can't quite get there. And but even goes, the fact that he was almost there. Is, is incredible. Right. And immediately after, I'm, I don't think he threw down his glove, but he showed visible signs of frustration and it's what we've heard about between Mullins and Hayes over the last few years is how these guys have developed this great defensive chemistry. We know Austin Hayes is one of the most competitive guys on this team. We know that Cedric Mullins is in that category as well. And so to see how seriously they take their defense is such a positive. And it's it's a sign that the culture is really building and really strengthening because they care so much. Austin Hayes was so upset after not being able, after putting together an incredible defensive game and being so good that he wasn't able to make an unbelievable, what would have been five-star catch, and he was frustrated at himself. That shows to me that they're taking this so, so seriously, and the results are showing themselves. They expect excellence. Yes. They expect, they know the talent that's on this team right now, especially in the outfield defensively with Mullins and Hayes they expect to make those spectacular plays because the talent is there, and that's not something you've been able to say no. about an Orioles outfield in a while. Yeah, they and they come to the, as Mancini said, they come to the ballpark expecting to win, and that just has not been the case. 
right. last few years. Good players feed off each other. Wins pile up when you are playing good baseball and you are playing to win every single day. And that's what we're, we're witnessing right now. On the farm, let's get to it real quick before we get out of here, Brendan. I mentioned Jordan Westberg is now in the top 100, according to MLB Pipeline, because of some graduations ahead of him. Unfortunately, we're going to see Adley Rutschman graduate with one more plate appearance or one more at-bat, I believe. However, for right now, the Orioles have six prospects in the top 100. They have the bookends with Adley at one, with Westberg at, at 100, and then they have four guys in the middle. It's pretty unbelievable. Yeah. The fact that the Orioles have six top 100 prospects, just how far this farm system has come is kind of ridiculous. Yeah. Right. And it's also a credit to, I mean, look, Jordan Westberg was a relatively high draft pick, but he still developed incredibly well, as did Gunnar Henderson. Grayson Rodriguez was a first-round pick, but he wasn't a top-10 pick. Yeah. So these guys are not only being drafted in good spots and they have solid pedigree coming out of the draft, but the Orioles are developing them incredibly well throughout the minor leagues. And this is a credit not just to the talent of the players, but also to the coaching staffs throughout the minor league levels. Yeah, so right now they have Adley at one. They have Grayson at three. They've got Gunnar Henderson at number 41. Colton Kowser is number 52. D.L. Hall is number 73. With Adley Rutschman graduating, we're going to get a new number one. And unfortunately, the Orioles will just have have to settle for having the number two prospect in all of baseball and Grayson Rodriguez, I guess, once he... he Terrible. Awful. How, how dare they? After he bumps up a slot, I would, I would assume that he's just going to be, you know bumped up a slot after Adley graduates. So then who is going to be the next top 100 prospect for the Orioles? Kobe Mayo, potentially. Maybe Heston Kerstad. Maybe Heston Kerstad. Back into the top 100. Because I was going to say, if Heston Kerstad doesn't have, you know, the unfortunate health issues, that's probably a top 100 prospect. I mean, he is playing some excellent baseball right now, granted at a much lower level than would have been expected in a, normal development if he did not have these unfortunate health issues. So maybe Heston Kerstad just comes back, proves that he is still the player that was worthy of the number two overall pick, and he works his way into the top 100. Yeah, and to be honest, Jordan Westberg may not have to be on that top 100 all too long because he may graduate start of 2023. We'll see exactly how long he marinates in the minors. But for right now, enjoy it for the next few hours until the game starts tonight when Adley gets his first at bat or plate appearance and then he's gone well and, the we, top and we talked about the defense too I want to talk about Jordan Westberg there's somebody who adds a plus defender if he comes in and starts playing maybe second base with the Orioles at the major league level whenever they decide to call him up he could play second he could play third that's a plus defender at either position and the number one overall pick will be a Baltimore Oriole in less than two weeks that there is, are some elite defenders at the top a, of the draft. That's a slam dunk top 100 prospect. I mean, right. Colton Kowser was a top 100 prospect, and he was the number five pick in that draft. Yep. So the Orioles are going to get one right back. So they are going to get, I'm just realizing this now, I've, maybe Jordan Westberg will be bumped out because he's at 100 right now, and then they add the draft class. It's all in flux. However, could be bumped out by the draft class, but yes. again, he also could graduate. He could graduate, and we also will have somebody who could be another top five, top 10 prospect depending on who the Orioles draft. Yeah. Exciting stuff. At Brandon Morty is Brendan's Twitter handle. I am at Paul Mancano. Thanks so much for tuning in to the podcast, which you can catch on Spotify, on SoundCloud, on Apple Podcasts. Please rate, review, give the podcast five stars, and let us know what you think of it as well. We also have 
this series of draft podcasts that we've been slowly rolling out over the past couple weeks. Tim Leonard has been doing a terrific job of that coverage as well. If you want to know more about who the Orioles might take at number one and who the Orioles might take with their other three day one picks, definitely tune into that podcast. He's got awesome uh, interviews, he's analysis, and things are only going to get more and more interesting as we get closer and closer to draft night. Thanks so much for tuning in. Thanks to Tim for producing this podcast as well, and we will catch you next time.